Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined remotely, as always, by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. What's going on? I cannot wait for the day. Those two words, as always, are eliminated from our Pound the Rock lexicon, because that probably means that will be the day joined remotely is also eliminated from our lexicon, and I can't wait for that. Yeah, when when we know that it's going to end, we'll do the joined remotely for the very last time. And that will be a beautiful day. There is light at the end of the tunnel, man. Spring is in the air. Vaccines are going into arms slowly but surely. Look, things still aren't great. And I think it's certainly not time to let up. We still got to be vigilant. And we're, you know, still a ways away from from getting out of this thing, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, for sure. And it's uh, it's encouraging. I will say I'm a little perturbed today by a very random piece of news. Saw, uh, found out yesterday via a tweet from the great Holly McKenzie here in Toronto that uh, Adrian Brody has been cast to play Pat Riley in, an, <laughs> in a movie about the 80s Lakers. And I'm not going to lie, I was genuinely upset that I was never even offered a audition, a consultation about this role. You know, you think you think you were born to do something and it turns out you weren't. I mean, who's producing this picture? I, I think it's like... Clearly not a Pound the Rock listener, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> but like, that, that's such a strange project to me because <laughs> I feel like, like there, there have been enough documentaries made, I, I think, about like the Showtime Lakers, right? I mean, I'm thinking of like the 30 for 30, I guess, specifically, the, like the three-parter w- about them and, and the Celtics. Like, I, I don't think I need a docudrama or, or like a dramatized retelling right. of Pat Riley's coaching career, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I mean, you, you got to hope, I guess, that Adrian Brody, you know, the pianist himself can do it justice. Yeah, well, here's hoping. <laughs> I could... Um, I mean, I know there's a big height difference, but I could have I could have done like the Pacino and the Irishman and worn those stilts they had him on. Do you remember that yeah. picture of Pacino, like on set in the Irishman, practically in stilts? It was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. I, I don't remember that picture, but I, I just ob- obviously like the technology to de-age those guys was incredible, but the fact that. Like when they had De Niro playing a younger version of himself, they couldn't have just used a body double for the scene where he like kicks that guy's ass. Yeah, <laughs> that's. It's like, I don't know that I I literally laughed out loud when I so, saw that because he's what eighty years old at this point doing like his he best, is seventies I think yeah the best geriatric kick that he can muster, and meanwhile I was just like destroying this guy who's like yeah. In in reality, half his age, it was uh, it was pretty comical. Yeah, but that, also, also an incredible picture, an incredible yeah, incredible movie, incredible like you said, technology to de-age those guys, incredible story too. Obviously, if anyone knows the story of Jimmy Hoffa, but the fact that that scene is what everyone remembers, and rightfully so, because it did such a poor job of matching what was supposed to happen there, is is kind of sad because it's like, man, you like you said, come on, Scorsese, you can't just get. <laughs> Like just this one scene, get a double that can kick. 
<laughs> anyway, we, we've really gone off on a tangent here. I, I feel like we usually pride ourselves on being the basketball podcast that actually gets into basketball pretty quickly and doesn't do the usual like, hey, here's what's going on in our lives at the beginning that no one cares about. And we've really diverted from that. And I apologize because I, I, I began this with my tangent about how I really thought I had a shot at playing a young Pat Riley. I was going to say, this is what happens when Pat Riley is cast without your consultation. But we we will cut to the chase and get into some basketball goings on. Um, there's a lot going on in the league right now, and we're, we're not really going to have time to get to all of it. Um, Joel Embiid hyperextending his knee. I feel like that's maybe like the biggest piece of news that's going on right now. And fortunately, the hyperextension is all it was because it looked at the time like it might be quite a bit worse than that. But he's going to be out for at least two weeks. For now, the Sixers are still winning without him. So obviously Godspeed uh, and, and hopeful for a quick recovery. Uh, the trade deadline is fast approaching. The rumors are flying. Hamadou Diallo is now on the Detroit Pistons. He was traded for Svi Mihailiuk. I don't know, I don't know entirely. Yeah, Svi Mihailiuk. 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 I think the I, the E part of his last name that's spelled with an I is silent, I believe. He was traded for Svi. Let's just say that. And honestly, I'm I'm shook. Yeah. Because this is, you know, like one of my breakout players that I talked about a few weeks back, like one of the guys who I think has made among the biggest leaps in the league this year. I was sort of thinking that he could be a piece for OKC long-term, you know, part of their young core moving forward, or at the very least, I mean, just last week we were talking about potential Lowry market and trade scenarios. And I thought that he could be, you know, maybe a centerpiece of like a, of a package for a deal in exchange for like another young prospect. And Svi is like, he's having a bad season. I know he comes with kind of the pedigree as a shooter, but that was just a weird deal. Yeah. And a 2027 second rounder. Right. Which was the only thing that adds up here. And it's unfortunate if this is the case, which it clearly is, is that the Thunder didn't want to deal with his restricted free agency and have to pay him because You know, based on the fact he's having the year he's having, Diallo would have been in line for, you know, not like a crazy deal, but definitely a substantial raise from what he's getting now. And I think I, we both think he deserved it because he seemed to at least to have established himself, like you said, either as part of this core going forward or as the type of player that can be dangled as a really enticing, you know, asset pro- prospect in potential deals for stars. And the fact that they end up giving him away for Svi and a 2027 second rounder is just, I mean, to be honest, it's the kind of cheap maneuvering OKC has been known for in the past. And it's pretty discouraging that it's already creeping into their basketball operations when they're in the period where they should be doing everything they can to just continue to collect young talent, not give it away because they don't want to overpay it. Yeah, I do think obviously like his restricted free agency looming over this was was the big impetus for them to make a move. Of course, Svi is also an impending restricted free agent, but I guess they either don't care if they lose him or just think that they'll be able to sign him for cheaper or maybe they just like him more as a player. I would find that surprising because I think Diallo is much more dynamic and yes, like his 
lack of shooting and the fact that teams can basically ignore him when he doesn't have the ball is a problem. But like projecting his long-term outlook, I think there's there's just like way more upside there as far as the kind of player that he can become. So I thought that was a little strange and kind of disappointing because I don't love his fit in Detroit either. Though I do think, you know, with, with Killian Hayes still out and them not really having another sort of go-to primary initiator, he will conceivably get a lot of on-ball reps there, which which could be a chance for him, I guess, to showcase what he can do as a creator with the ball in his hands, which is something that he started to flash a lot of this season. Anyway, that's not really the purpose of this podcast. Uh, this episode, we wanted to take sort of a Western Conference temperature check because uh, there are some teams that we haven't talked a ton about. And, you know, coming into this season, Cash, you picked the Lakers over the field to win the NBA title. I feel like probably the Nets now in the East have changed that calculus for you. But I am wondering, would you still take the Lakers over the field in the West? Yes. But I think there are some interesting teams that we're going to talk about today that, you know, deserve consideration. Like, when I say I would take the Lakers over the field, that doesn't mean I give some good teams 0% chances to beat them. Like, I think they're beatable. They're not, this isn't the 2016, 17, 17, 18 Warriors, you know? Like, I, I don't see them as this unbeatable thing that you need an injury to derail them. I just think if all teams are healthy, I would quite confidently pick the Lakers in any of those matchups. Um, and, you know, I mentioned even a team like the Warriors that were pretty inevitable could be derailed by an injury. Well, the Lakers, who are a lesser team than that inevitable team, have been at least temporarily derailed by the fact Anthony Davis, the guy that I've been saying, you know, for how long now makes the matchup proof, is out nursing uh, an Achilles injury. Now, you know, thankfully he didn't rupture it. It's not the kind of thing that's season ending. It shouldn't be, you'd hope, career limiting. But look, an Achilles issue is an Achilles issue. And when you're a big guy like AD, who has in general in the past had some issues staying in the lineup, it's concerning, you know, and especially when you're a very important superstar on the defending champions who are very much on track to repeat or at least contend to repeat and are going to be playing hopefully another, what are we in right now? March, this year, the finals ended just like four more months. You know, that's, there's still a lot of runway to go here considering that AD has missed how much time now with an Achilles issue. It's and another couple weeks to come. So I would still take the Lakers over the field, but if there's reason to believe AD is just not going to be hundred percent for the rest of the season, then I would probably take the nets in general and uh, and then, yeah, there are some of these teams we're going to talk about today who I think already have at least a chance to beat the healthy Lakers, then in my mind would probably just beat them if AD is out of the picture. Yeah, I think all, all that's fair. And, you know, for me, I felt pretty confident coming in that it was going to be Lakers Clippers in the West Finals. And I know you didn't have as much faith in the Clippers as I did. And I still have... I still have a lot of faith in the Clippers, but I do think both them and the Lakers have looked pretty fallible. And, you know, there are a bunch of teams who are kind of coming up behind them 
I mean, behind them isn't really the right way to put it when the Jazz and the Suns are both ahead of them in the standings. But I think sort of more symbolically, those teams, I think, are breathing down their necks as teams that could potentially vie for Western Conference supremacy. So I think there are, to to me, there are like 4.5 teams in this category of teams that could conceivably knock off one or maybe even both of those teams. Um, And we can get to the 0.5. I feel like you'll be able to guess which team that is. But I think that group in some order is the Jazz, Suns, Nuggets, Mavs, and Blazers. And Damian is basically on Damian Lillard is what you're... Yeah. And we can save the Blazers for last because I, yeah. I just think they sort of belong in their own category because I don't actually think they're a real threat, but I just think they deserve a ton of credit for staying afloat the way that they have. But how do you feel about that group? Do you feel like there's a ton of separation in that group? Uh, do you have one team, you know, out of those, let, let's say out of those four uh, between the Suns, Jazz, Nuggets, and and uh, Mavs that you think kind of like has the best chance to actually do this thing? Like, where do you want to start here? All right. In terms of separation, I do think that, at, at least on a regular season basis, like, I think you have to say the Jazz and the Suns have separated themselves from teams like the Nuggets and Mavs who have been far more inconsistent, the Mavs especially. But and the Jazz, you know, deserve all the credit in the world for what they've done, for having the best record in the league right now, um, for being a, a very dynamic team on both ends of the court. Like I, I like that team a lot. Full credit to them. But I still think Phoenix has the best chance of these teams to actually knock off, or at the very least, like seriously trouble the two LA teams. And it comes back to something you know if, if you're a regular pound the rock listener you've probably heard me say this a ton of times since the season started it, the reason i think phoenix has the best chance out of these teams is because of the fact they have the personnel the big wing stoppers to match up with the lebrons the Kawhis, the pgs you're not stopping those guys i get that but you know who's utah putting on lebron and or Kawhi and pg you know uh, look, Royce O'Neal is a tremendous on-ball defender. He's also sm- too small to guard those guys. Bojan Bogdanovic, I think he competes on the defensive end. And you know what? Like He'll have his moments where he uses his strength. And again, the, the compete level is there. But he's not guarding those guys competently in a long, grueling playoff series. I'm sorry. He's just not going to get the job done there. Phoenix has, between Mikhail Bridges and Jay Crowder, almost as good a combination as you could ask for in the NBA, certainly in the West, of of multiple big, capable wing defenders, wing stoppers, who, you know, if they, they, they can take smaller guys too, but, you know, if you've got those big kind of three, four types, those guys are perfect for them. And the ability to, you know, put either of the go- those guys on LeBron in a Lakers series, the ability to put one each on Kawhi and PG in a Clippers series like that's huge. And again, I'm not, they might not be able to stop them. They probably won't. And it doesn't mean they're going to beat them, but I just don't think any of these other teams who could, you know, give, give the LA teams trouble in their own way. Their fatal flaw at the end of the day is going to be that they don't have anyone who can even physically match up with those guys. And the Suns, the Suns have the talent. They have the two-way ability. 
they have you know, like the wherewithal to hang with them on a basketball sense, but they also have the physical ability to do it between Bridges and Crowder. And I think that's huge in a playoff series against those teams. So yeah, all of which is to say, I think while Utah, like Phoenix, has separated themselves from the pack in the regular season, I still think Phoenix, more than any of the teams we're talking about today, has the most realistic chance of competing and beating one of the LA teams in the playoffs. I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I think also you got to look at it a couple of different ways, right? Yes, it's important to have a primary who can sort of slow those big wings down at the point of attack. But like defense in the NBA today isn't one-on-one. And I think that's maybe where I have some concerns about Phoenix compared to, you know, team like Utah. Like if, you know, the, the, Lakers and Clippers are kind of just going to go hunting for like the weaker defenders on the floor and they can go after Devin Booker and like they can go after DeAndre Ayton. And it's not just about who, you know, starting a possession, defending those guys. It's like the team defense has to, has to have a lot of structural integrity in order to take away what those guys want to do. And I, I have some concerns about, like DeAndre Ayton in particular and and what his defense and how it's looked this season is going to mean for the Suns playoff prospects. I really like the Suns. I think I've really enjoyed watching them this season because I think their offense just has a really nice flow to it. Like they they just sort of flow seamlessly from one action into the next you know it's like a flare screen turns into a pick and roll a pick and roll on one side of the floor opens up a slot cut on the other side booker is like working off of pin downs and curls and there's a lot of spain pick and roll and they improvise out of that set really well you look at their pace numbers and it tells you that they're playing slow but like when you watch them it doesn't really look that way like they're they're patient and they're very precise, but they don't get bogged down. You know, like like Paul might ISO against a big here or there, and Booker will duck in and mash smaller guards in the post, and that's something he's just gotten so good at. Like, his post game is unbelievable. And, and that's stuff that's really going to help them, like when the game slows down in the playoffs, but also they don't give defenses a break. Like, they move and they zip the ball around and they keep that machine humming. Uh, so despite the fact that they like to walk the ball up and their sets can take a while to unfold, they run their stuff with like a clarity of purpose that I think eludes a lot of teams in the league and especially a lot of teams that have ostensibly ball dominant guards and like Booker and Paul will, will do the work to get the defense moving. But once that happens, it's like, boom, boom, boom rapid fire passes and cuts without them ever really getting stalled out. And, um, you know, Mikhail Bridges, like, I think he works really, really well off of the ball. Like their entire team, I think works well off of the ball. They relocate exceptionally well. Like they, they lift from the corner when defenses are kind of loading up on the strong side and trying to zone up the weak side. They don't make it easy. So I think like their, their offense to me looks playoff ready. And obviously, like if you if you look at their numbers, like their defense has been even better than their offense, right? I think they're they're fifth or sixth in defensive efficiency, which is like ahead of where their offense is at. But 
in the playoffs, I don't know that it necessarily works as well as it's been doing in the regular season. I don't know. What, what's what's kind of like your take on that or your feel on on whether their defense can translate, whether whether Aiton is going to be an issue in a playoff series against like an elite level offense. I mean, look, probability wise, he probably will be like, we're still talking about a third year big whose defense has come a long way, but you know, who still isn't like the most mobile guy who still has games where you can almost see him trying to process like how to move and where to go and and what to do defensively. And look, that's like that's not a bad thing. Again, he's a young big, young bigs, especially ones that aren't the most mobile. Like sometimes they never develop into good defenders. Oftentimes they take a long time. But I think the fact that he's he's even taken the steps he has is very encouraging. But again, like you can just see the hesitancy and the unsureness sometimes. And so I think while he's continuing to work out of that, like you have to expect there will be at least a game, if not two, maybe an entire series where a team exploits that. And, you know, we're talking about the two LA teams who have just like some brilliant basketball minds on them, you know, and LeBron and Kawhi, especially that them and the coaching staffs will find a way to exploit that and get him moving and putting him in spots where, you know, where the margin for error is thinner in the playoffs and you maybe don't have that extra half second to process things, right? And so I think that's fair. I think I think that is a concern, right? Like th- with all of these teams, none of them are perfectly suited to match up with the two LA teams. I think the, uh, you know, what I was mentioning with the, the size of their wing defenders helps Phoenix the most, but I still don't think they're perfect. You know, they're, they're still an imperfect matchup like all these teams are. Uh, and and Aiton's probably the biggest reason why that defensive end for them. Not probably, he is. Yeah, so, and this is something that I that I wrote about uh, in a piece of actually that's coming out today, but they, until their last win over Memphis on Monday, they'd gone four straight games without playing him a single minute in the fourth quarter. Wow. One of those games was a blowout, but the other three were like relatively close and they basically played Saric at the five for like the entirety of all those fourth quarters and pretty much dominated in his minutes at the five as they've done all season. He's got literally the best individual net rating in the entire league. They're like plus 24 per hundred possessions with him on the floor. He, he He's really like found the, his NBA role, I think. And it's been great to watch. Absolutely. And, you know, at the offensive end, I think he gives them like Aiton's, Roll gravity and Aiden screening is still very important to what they do offensively. Sarge gives them a bit of a different element in that he can space it out. Uh, he's a very slick high post passer. And I think their actions just maybe have a little bit more fluidity when he's out there. Cause sometimes it's like if Aiden's catching the ball on the roll, like that next decision isn't always coming super quick. Whereas with Sarge, I feel like it is. But I do think the reason, you know, more so than the offensive stuff that Sarge has been closing games is the defensive side of the ball. And I think that's pretty interesting because coming into the season, I would have said like Aiton's defensive upside is way higher than Sarge's. Like his physical tools are just in a completely other dimension. But he hasn't really progressed the way that I expected him to. And one thing I think is interesting is like the Suns are having him switch a lot. And I, I I wonder if maybe that's 
sort of to see like what he can give them as a switch defender because they anticipate him having to do that in a playoff series. And what I think I've kind of noticed in watching him is is like against like sub elite on ball creators and against guys who aren't like super dangerous pull up shooters, like against John Morant, for instance, the other night, he can totally hold his own. Like if he's playing a guy with a gap, I think he gives himself a little bit of leeway to slide his feet and cut off the drive. Uh, he can do that. But when he's forced to play a little bit higher and closer to the ball, he gets blown by pretty easily. And that's not unique to him. I mean, that's something that most bigs in the league struggle with. But like his change of direction isn't quite there. His positioning is just often a little bit off. And he's opening up his hips and he's opening up driving lanes. And they... So, so I checked the synergy numbers and basically he has defended more isolations following a pick and roll switch than any player in the league this year. And I, I just think that's interesting because he's actually really struggled. Like the numbers on that have been very bad. He's allowing 1.25 points per possession on those ISOs. And I, I think, you know, what's maybe concerning about that is like he he can be really good in a drop again, like against a team where like there isn't a significant pull-up threat, but against like Damian Lillard, uh, you know, in the game against the Blazers the other night, for instance, like it was kind of the same thing. Like the, those drop coverages were turning into late switches and he just wasn't able to stay in front. And eventually they just kind of had to pull him and throw Saric on the floor instead. So I, I like part of me is wondering, okay, are they like trying to prep him for the playoffs or does Monty Williams just like not really trust him to like consistently be in a drop uh, and protect the rim or does Monty Williams not trust him to hedge and recover um, because that often requires you to s- sort of make like on the fly reads because the defense is getting in rotation. Cause when Sarge is out there, like Sarge is basically showing and recovering on most pick and rolls and Instead, they're having eight and switch, and it's not going especially well. So I, I don't really know what that means for what it's going to look like for him in the playoffs and whether all this, uh, you know, whether it's preparation they're doing or whether they're just sort of like throwing shit at the wall and trying to see what works. How um, high would he realistically have to play against either of the L.A. teams, I guess, is is my question, because they don't have neither of them have like the traditional ball dominant or shooting type guards, but they the, the position doesn't have to be point guard or shoot like. Paul George, for example, will run pick and rolls and is an elite shooter. And, okay, it's not a guard per se, but Aiton would have to play pretty high rather than dropping against PG. So I think that's an interesting question too, is like what what does his positioning look like guarding the pick and roll against the two LA teams specifically? Yeah, no, I, I definitely think that's an interesting question. I mean, Kawhi and PG present, I think, a mega threat as pull-up shooters. And, and LeBron, honestly, this year has been a pretty damn good pull-up three-point shooter himself. And also, it's like if LeBron is barreling downhill at you and you're backpedaling, then that presents a whole different set of challenges. And like Aiton's footwork, which has been subpar in a lot of instances this season, is going to be tested in a big, big way. Um, and then I think you also get into like, is, is a drop scheme what's best for Phoenix's perimeter defenders? You know, like Devin Booker isn't, exactly great at staying attached to ball handlers when he's chasing them over screens and quite honestly like Chris Paul is still a really good defender I think but his strength at this point is as like a weak side helper and as a switch defender who 
uses his strength and his low center of gravity to jostle with bigger players. And so I think, you know, whether it's because of Aiton or because of their perimeter guys, it might make more sense for the Suns to run either like the hedge and recover or the trap and recover or the switching system rather than the drop, which like the drop still probably is where Aiton is best. Um, and that's, I guess, something that they're going to have to juggle. Yeah. I mean, look, the playoffs have a way of exposing your flaws in a really jarring way, especially for teams like the Suns, who, other than a few veterans on the team, haven't really been exposed in that way yet on that stage. And and just thinking about that and even just the conversation we had, you've now talked me into the, the forget compete. The Suns are a first round out. It's- <laughs> No, but for real, like I, I, I still think they have, I think the best shot of these teams to, to take on the Lakers. But I think the conversation we just had is a good example of like how, yeah, like just how imperfect a lot of these teams, teams in general this year, I'm not just saying these four teams, but like teams have their flaws and in the right, or I guess in this case, the wrong matchup in a bad week with the playoff spotlight on with the way possessions are valued in the playoffs. Like, yeah, like those things will be exposed and it will be jarring, you know, whether it's Phoenix or another team. And it's just, it has such a way of almost making, even though I think we both enjoy the regular season, we enjoy covering it. We enjoy, you know, getting to know teams and finding out what their strengths and weaknesses are. The jarring nature, like the way those flaws are exposed sometimes in the playoffs, especially for teams that are just like a notch below true contender status. It really does have a way of for a few days making you think like, what, what were these last 82 or in this case, 72 <laughs> games even for, you know, like it, it does kind of make you feel like that sometimes. Cause it's like, right. Like we, we did know this was probably coming. Yeah. And that's how I'm going to feel when like Aiton gets played off the floor <laughs> or, you know, Booker who's competing on the defensive end just gets like, brutally exposed in a game against a bigger star and yeah it's unfortunate but there'll be a day where we do think like that in a few months well there's that oft parroted adage about the playoffs which is like you know the regular season is about strengths the playoffs are about weaknesses and i think that's sort of what we're talking around Mm -hmm. right now um but again i just i've really enjoyed watching the suns uh and I thought they were going to be good this year. I didn't think they were going to be this good. But look, no one has ever regretted trading for Chris Paul, right? Like if, if you want to make your team really good, just trade for Chris Paul. And yes, I, I can see you gesturing and, and I will acknowledge this, okay? Because we agree a lot on this podcast. So when we have disagreements, however small, we do need to litigate them. And before the season started, when the Bucks made the Drew Holiday trade, you insisted that they had made a huge mistake and they should have thrown that same package at OKC for Chris Paul. And I, I didn't necessarily disagree, but I did kind of like defend the Bucks and say, look, Holiday is five years younger. They're looking to the future. It makes perfect sense for them to go after him instead. And I'm giving you the W on this one. Yeah, and my, my thing was that, because if you remember at the time, and I understood your argument, this was also at the time when they got, they thought they had Bogdanovich as well. And if I remember correctly, part of your argument was also that, like, you can't just look at it as they p- picked Chris Paul over Drew Holiday. They picked the ability to have Drew Holiday and Bogdan Bogdanovich over Chris Paul. And I still said, to me, it doesn't matter. Like, I get two is two good players might be 
or two really good players might be better than great one great player in the regular season, but there will come a time in the playoffs where the Bucks are exposed in ways they've been exposed before, and you will wish it was Chris Paul instead of those two guys because there's a certain level of superstar that is a game changer, and Chris Paul is one of them. And and so yeah, that, that like that's what I was saying at the time where I just thought, not even from the cheapness perspective, but just like getting Drew if it was an actual choice. Getting Drew and Bogdan over the ability to get Chris Paul to me was like very small market thinking. And and what I was saying was like this team doesn't want to be seen as a small market team. They don't want, you know, but like going that route to me was like a very small market. No, we're going to find a way to make this work without doing it this way. And it was like, no, man, do it the way you know that it should get done. But anyway, okay, bucks aside, uh, what I was actually going to say when you, when you saw me going like this was, man... I, it was a stat that I came across when we were doing some of our season preview stuff. It wasn't really that surprising to me, but it was, you know, pretty cool. And it's going to get extended barring, you know, catastrophe this year. And it's that Chris Paul teams came into this year. Uh, I believe nine straight seasons, Chris Paul led teams have won at least 60% of their games. And I know he wasn't the lone star on those teams. He had other guys in LA in Houston. He wasn't even the best player on his team, but then he goes to OKC, a, a young team that everyone thought was going to be a cellar dweller, and they win 61% of their games. Then he goes to Phoenix, where, okay, people thought they'd be good. But as you mentioned, you know, a lot of smart basketball minds didn't even think they'd be this good. And they're on track to be the second best team in the West. Like Chris Paul's, you know, ringless debate aside, Chris Paul's ability to impact winning in the NBA is just almost unprecedented you know, among his peers. And we're looking at a 10th straight year where a Chris Paul team is going to win 60 plus percent of his games. It's just unbelievable. And and yeah, it's something to marvel at. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. So you touched on the Jazz briefly. I don't think we need to go into too much detail with them because we've talked about them a bunch already this season. But I do want to say, I mean, because I was mentioning like the Suns offense and how they don't get bogged down. And I think you could say to arguably even a greater extent, that's true of Utah. Like they're very rarely one and done in terms of, you know, they run one action, it gets switched or it gets contained. And then it it sort of devolves into like one-on-one play. Like that does happen, but they will cycle through three or four, different actions before they get to that point and they make you keep defending, right? Like they, they keep moving and they keep trying to get what they want. And look, we, again, we know what their strengths and weaknesses are um, and teams that are very good at switching, which I think like people throw that out as a catch all, like, Oh, you you just switch and you can like take away what the jazz do. Like that's actually really difficult but teams that are really good at switching can take them out of their offense and can sort of force them to kind of like 
funnel the ball through Donovan Mitchell and like have him try and go one-on-one though. I will say like Boyan who had kind of like a tough start to the season has lately like really perked up in the post. I like, I noticed this, especially in that game against the Celtics last night where they kept switching Kemba Walker and Peyton Pritchard onto them. And he would just like take them right into the post and score. So I think that's a good sign, but I just, the thing with Gobert and like his lack of offensive skill, I think makes it easier for teams to downsize against them. And a few weeks back, they had a game against the Clippers where like the Clippers went to that small ball lineup with Marcus Morris at the five. And they went on a huge run against Utah by doing that. Um, There are just certain buttons. I think that like really good teams can press that can kind of not neutralize Utah, but just sort of like bring them down a level. And this gets into something that, I've, I've sort of been thinking about and and we can move into talking about Denver, but I do feel like a lot of time when we talk about, okay, how, how are these teams matching up with the LA teams or, or whoever it is like the, the team that is like the presumed favorite. We're thinking about like, how is an underdog or like an upstart team that has designs of taking them down? How are they going to counter what those teams do? And I think, we don't maybe look enough at the other side of that equation, which is like, what can these teams do to make those favorites uncomfortable? And I think for both Utah and Phoenix, my concern is like, I don't know if those teams have enough tactical advantages or individual matchup advantages to sort of unwind those teams in the way that, for instance, Jokic was able to, and, you know, even to a lesser extent, Doncic was able to against the Clippers last year. And that's why I think I would still probably peg Denver as the most likely team, I think, to take one of these teams down because they just have that guy that, is basically impossible to scheme for. And and he poses like a huge matchup quandary for any team that he plays. But, you know, I think you could say the Lakers at least have an answer for him in Anthony Davis. If Anthony Davis is fully healthy, I think if they wind up matching up against the Clippers again, like that's going to be a big concern because Jokic has gotten even better. And he's gotten to the point where he is functionally unguardable like there is no way to defend him and for that reason alone I feel like I would put Denver at the top of this list what do you think well I mean preseason I had them remember we had um that debate where I I picked them over the Clippers to get to the West final in in a rematch of last year's West final I said I'd pick them over the Clippers again I think they might just be a better team and while I think we'd both pick Kawhi obviously like in, in a, a winner-take-all game, we also have to acknowledge that Jokic and Kawhi had the opportunity to go head-to-head in a big playoff series, and Jokic was clearly the best player in that series. So it's not like it's crazy or without precedent to think that he could be the best player in a series against that team again. So, yeah, I mean, for the sake of not changing my preseason prediction, I, I'd probably stick with Denver making the West Finals again. I think after that shaky start, they've really picked it up. Jokic has just been he, this guy's been playing godly basketball. And if you know even in the comparisons with with Utah for example, like 
we both agreed that Gobert is still their most valuable player. And I still also think that, you know, you mentioned the Clippers going small and the run they went on in that game. I still think there are examples and instances where you can maybe play Rudy Gobert off the floor. Maybe not as much as you once could, but I I think it's possible. And it would scare the hell out of me if my most valuable player, and a great player, but like could get played off the court. Like how many top players, even a top two player on a legit contender, can you say that about? I mean, I think play off the floor is quite strong. Like, I don't, I don't think Gobert is getting played off the floor. Is are are there things that you can do to make his impact less pronounced? Definitely. I, I don't think like getting played off the floor to me means that the guy has become a liability. Right, like Montrezl like last year. <laughs> yeah, like I don't think it ever actually gets to that point with Gobert. I think that's vastly overstated. I think with the Clippers in particular, like I think the Lakers are a better matchup for Utah than the Clippers are. Like if they were to face one of those LA teams, I kind of think they would rather face the Lakers than they would the Clippers because I do think, you know, not that the Lakers can't be a really good switch team also, but I do think that like that, that small ball Clippers lineup can pose some problems for them. And also they're just a way better jump shooting team than the Lakers. And that's when you can kind of get into okay, is Gobert really making the kind of impact that we need from him when he's not able to take advantage of his size advantage at the offensive end and this other team is just spreading us out and like pulling threes. So like his rim protection isn't as valuable as it might otherwise be, you know, if you were going up against a team that relied more on interior scoring. But yeah, I mean, like, I take your point. I, I just don't, I, I just get frustrated when people say like Gobert is going to get played off the floor in the playoffs because I don't think that's actually what happens. I, th- I think his impact can be minimized in ways that usually you wouldn't be able to talk about when it comes to guys who might be or probably are the MVPs on contenders. Um, yeah, but so t- to kind of take this back to the Nuggets... I mean, Jokic is like I, I would probably, if I was if I was picking now, would have Jokic as, as the MVP of the league. Agreed. And it's just like it's always been hard to know what to do with him in like pick and roll, um, and especially when Murray gets going, it's like you know you can't go under screens, you can't send two to the ball because then you're opening up four on threes for Jokic, which is just like asking for death. If you switch it. Jokic is going to destroy a mismatch in the post unless you send two to the ball. And then you have the same quandary where you're just like opening up avenues for his playmaking. And it's also just gotten to the point where like he can smoke guys one-on-one now. Like he's way quicker putting the ball on the floor, like beating guys off of the bounce, cutting off of the ball. Um, And so then for Denver, it just kind of comes down to a, like what can you expect from the rest of those guys at the offensive end and B how can they make it work? defensively and offensively honestly I don't really have that many concerns like Murray is really coming around after a a very rough start that probably had a lot to do with the ankle and knee injuries he was dealing with I do think his decision making still leaves something to be desired at times like he can pound the ball you know especially like after he and Jokic have forced a switch and Jokic has like a smaller guy on him 
Murray will just like take a little bit too long to get it to him. And that gives the defense time to like scram that mismatch out. I was watching like he had a miserable game against the Grizzlies a few nights ago where he was like trying to post up Justice Winslow and wound up taking like an early fadeaway. It's just the decision-making isn't always there, but like we, we know what he's capable of at the highest level. So I don't have a ton of concerns about that. Will Barton has been playing a lot better lately after he got off to a pretty rough start. I think Michael Porter Jr. has been coming along, honestly. I know like there was maybe like a bit of stagnation there early in the season, but he's looked good. He's improved on the defensive guess, end, man. Yeah, definitely. And that's something we've mentioned in the past, right? Like I know obviously it got a lot of play in that Utah series, how bad he was and how ruthlessly they were attacking him. And, and like he still has issues sort of like getting into a stance. He, he's still a little bit upright and he gets lost off the ball sometimes, but he has a way better sense, I think, of where to be. He's pulled in from the weak side to help uh, a lot more alertly, I think, than he used to be. But I, I still think, like, you know, the big question is, is like, do they have enough on the wing and especially defensively on the wing? And that's why I think, um, you know, there's been some buzz about Aaron Gordon. I think that'd be an awesome addition for them if they could find a way to get him. Um, because on top of... I think they could use an on-ball defender for big wings. But also, I think they need like a weak side defender who can provide cover for Jokic when he's playing high up on the floor, uh, which he's doing a lot. And that that used to be Millsap. You know, he'd be the guy who'd quarterback the rotations on the back end and, and serve as a secondary rim protector. And Millsap still has a bit of juice left, but he doesn't move as well as he used to or get off the ground as quickly as he used to. And I kind of wonder if Gordon could fill both of those needs, you know, being the on ball defender that they throw at like a big wing on the other team, but also the weak side defender who is providing a little bit of cover for Jokic. Yeah. I actually love that you went there because one of the things I was going to say that this team needs is you use the term secondary rim protector i was going to say they need an unofficial rim protector almost kind of like a fake rim protector where it's like he this is the team's rim protector he doesn't play a big position he's not a center Jokic technically is but this guy is the team's rim protector and i think um i I think that is what they need and it doesn't you know gordon would be an awesome option obviously but I, i don't even think it has to be a player of that magnitude just someone who can fill that role in a way that yeah Millsap maybe used to be a little more capable of doing. And I think that would really complete this team and make them a lot more playoff proof. Yeah. I don't know. Can you think of anybody who like might be on the market who could do that? Honestly, no. And I hadn't even thought of Gordon. And I think, uh, I think that's actually a great one. It's just a matter of, you know, what's it going to take to get Aaron Gordon and whatever it does take to get him does it leave you still with enough to to truly contend for a title mm-hmm. maybe and if it does you make that deal but i would imagine the magic will be asking for quite a bit you know whether you agree yeah. that they should be or not that's another but they will be asking for a lot i was thinking maybe something on along the lines of like gary harris pj dozier and a first round pick i'd make that move if i was denver would you make it if you were Orlando? No. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, what are they holding out for? Like yeah, you know, multiple true. multiple first round picks? Maybe. I, I'm not a huge PJ Dozier guy, but like 
he's gotten a decent amount of run this year and has acquitted himself reasonably well. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. um, what do you think of Dallas? I, 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 I sort of conceive of Dallas as like Heat West in that they came into the season with pretty lofty expectations and then started the year in very disappointing fashion for reasons that were in many ways beyond their control. You know, injuries, COVID, health and safety protocols. Uh, Luca was probably also not in peak shape, and, and that was, I suppose, under their control. But all of those issues seem to have remedied themselves as the season has gone along. And now they're basically fully healthy. Uh, Luca looks incredible. And, you know, guys like Josh Richardson, who, who I think had been a pretty major disappointment, has finally started to find a groove. And I think the most important development is like over the last few games, Porzingis has started to look like Porzingis again. So I feel like they're getting on track and, you know, to, to tie this into the Denver conversation, they also have, they, they have a guy who can really cause problems for any opposing defense that he sees in a way that no individual player on Utah or Phoenix can, even though those teams have like these great team oriented systems that can cause headaches they don't have that like silver bullet um, who can do all kinds of damage on his own. So I don't know. What, what What's your take on the Mavs so far? Well, my first take is that I'm glad you explained why you had them on this list before throwing it to me. Because what I was going to say, if you just threw it to me directly before saying anything, was I was actually curious to hear your thoughts on them. Because I was surprised when you first gave me the list uh, of teams we were going to talk about on this week. And, and Dallas was included because while I had higher hopes for them coming into the season, while I'm obviously, you know, a full Luka believer, how can you not be? And I do think he he's already probably good enough to be the best player in a championship. Like, he's that good. But I think they, they've just been so inconsistent, and I'm not really sold in his supporting cast. And Porzingis is coming around around the same kind of portion of the season when he came around last year after coming back from injury. But... Like the drop off, first of all, it all a lot depends on what how you even view Porzingis at this point of his career. But even if you do view Porzingis as a game changer, the drop off from Dallas's top two to their like number three to like the rest of their roster is far, far, far steeper than it traditionally is for contending teams. And it's have it's you been tough. watching Jalen Brunson this season? <laughs> Listen. I don't know how much of that is you half joking and how much of that is you being serious. Brunson has been great. I like Brunson a lot. I like there's multiple players on this team I like a lot. Do I like them enough that I think they are close to being the third best players on a true contender? No. And I think that's why like I look at Dallas as a team that has upside. I look at them as a team that will be a figure in the West conversation for years to come. But I just don't think they're there yet. I really don't. And I don't even think they're in the conversation with Utah, Phoenix, and Denver yet. Other than the fact that Doncic can probably win a series on his own at this point. And maybe that happens. I mean, we've seen it happen with great players in the past. You know, like Dwayne Wade was what, in his third season when he basically single-handedly beat the Mavs in the finals? Well, single-handedly plus, I guess, guys wearing officials' uniforms is what <laughs> is what Mavs fans would say. Is what Mavs fans say. I'm not going there. But... Yeah, Doncic is capable of doing that. But I think, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier in the pod about 
Phoenix having the big wing defenders. I think if there's a team more than any other that I do believe could actually be put closer to over the top just by getting one of those type of big wing defenders, it's Dallas. Mm-hmm. Like if someone like a Dorian Finney-Smith was a couple inches taller and like 25 pounds heavier, I, I would like Dallas's chances a lot more. So if they can land one of those guys, then like, I don't know, can can Dallas get like PJ Tucker or something from from a former division rival? Like, I, I don't know. It just if they can get a guy like that, mm-hmm. I would like their chances a lot more than I do right now, where I think they are going to be similar to last year, where it's like they really tease their future in a first round loss. Right. Yeah. I mean, PJ would be interesting. I, I think they should probably be sniffing around. You know, if I was them, I would probably look for somebody who could give them a little bit more offensively, you know, while also providing that sturdy wing defense. And I don't know if that type of player is available. Like, I guess you could just like throw Gordon out there as well as somebody who maybe they could target, but I don't think they actually have the goods to get an Aaron Gordon trade done. They just don't have enough to deal. But yeah, somebody in that mold who's not just going to be a stationary shooter on offense, right? I feel like that's one thing they need to is, and this is part of why I think Porzingis coming back around has been so big for them because it's not just that he's shooting the ball better, but he's like really putting the ball on the deck and getting to the rim. Like he looks way more explosive. And and defensively, I think he's totally rebounded from the very sluggish start that he had at that end of the floor where he's back to kind of erasing the rim. Um, his mobility looks, you know, a lot closer to what it was like last year. Um, he's rolling hard. Like he looks like Porzingis again. And I think that's huge, but I, I think they're still lacking in secondary playmakers. And I don't know that the kind of heliocentric style that they're playing with Luca is going to get it done for multiple rounds in the playoffs. And I think that's why I guess we'll see what happens with Richardson. Like he was the guy who I thought could hopefully give them that element. And it just hasn't really happened. Like his shooting off of the dribble hasn't been there at all. And he, in a lot of instances has also just been relegated to being a spot up shooter. And maybe that's just what playing with Luca does. But until very recently, I think he'd been like supremely disappointing and and he started to show a little bit of life lately. Um, But Brunson, honestly, like I was sort of half joking when I said that. I do think he's been their third best player this year and that is maybe a problem. But that dude is awesome. Like he is so shifty with the ball. I think he's very good at bending the defense with kind of hesitations and fakes. Like when, when defenses are playing the drop against him, he's kind of good at getting the big man to retreat, especially when they're playing pick and pop, like he'll freeze them and get them to retreat, to open up the lane before he accelerates toward the basket. And he just become like an exceptionally efficient scorer. And whether that can carry over the playoffs when maybe his size is going to start to become a concern, I guess is another matter. But uh, for now, he's the one I think who's providing them that secondary playmaking. I don't disagree with any of that. And what I most agree with is what you started that statement with and that he's been awesome and he's been their third best player, but that's a problem, <laughs> right? Like it's not, that's not just like, that's not me dissing him. That's just more me dissing the team, like mm-hmm. the roster construction. Right. 
And then, the, like, I think the other big question mark is if they run into a team that can effectively switch the Doncic Porzingis pick and roll. You know, do they have enough answers for that? I think that's always been with Porzingis, especially. It's like Luca, if he's isoing against anybody, I think you feel okay about his chances to manufacture something, whether it's a bucket for himself or he's just drawing a second defender's attention and zipping a pass to an open shooter with Porzingis on the, on the back end of those switches. um, I think that's where it can sort of play into the defense's hands a little bit. Although I honestly do think that he's been like a little bit better in the post this year than he's been in past years and and him adding that as a counter would be pretty big. Yeah. Like I I still think that, man, we've just seen so little of him healthy like for an extended period of time recently but i still think that like if you look at his skill set if you look at like his best stretches even last season and this season there is there is like a package there that makes him very compatible with luka Doncic. like i know people say like it's not the best fit but i think like either as a pick and roll partner, as a pick and pop guy who does have range. Like I know his percentages haven't always, but like he's got the range. He can he can stretch it out, man. Like you you need to guard him out there. I think there are a lot of reasons why it is actually a really good potential partnership, and it would it would suck if it if yeah I'm Cuban saying now that you know Don, uh, Porzingis is not on the trade block as earlier reports suggested. Who knows whether that's smoke and mirrors or legit? But I think it would be a shame for two guys this good and this young to be broken up before we even got to really see what they could do together outside of like a four game stretch here, a three game stretch here, you know, I don't know what, maybe, maybe it doesn't look any different, but does that West quarterfinal series, that first round series look a little different if Porzingis doesn't get hurt? I don't know. I mean, I think it's hard to say otherwise. Yeah. Whether it looking different would amount to the Mavs actually (laughs) winning the series is another matter, but yeah, I think it would have looked different if if Dallas' second best player and like by far their second best player had been healthy for what did he miss the last three games of that series? I think so, three or four actually. So yeah, anyway, I, I definitely think uh, you know for for Dallas's sake, you hope that he's healthy. I guess going into the playoffs this year. Um, all right, let's round this out with the Blazers, who I, I don't actually think belong in this group, but I just got to give it up to them because. They were already reaching absurd levels of pulling out improbable wins by the skin of their teeth before last night. And then they went and erased a 17-point deficit in less than six minutes to beat the Pelicans on a pair of last-second Dame Lillard free throws. Uh, And by the way, dude still hasn't missed a clutch free throw this season. He is now, what, 37 for 37? Yep. Uh I don't know how it's working. I don't really believe in this team. Their defense remains a hot mess. But somehow, despite having a negative point differential, they are 23 and 16. CJ McCollum just came back. I don't know if he was on a minutes limit or they were just sort of playing it cautious, but he, he wasn't playing down the stretch. And he definitely looked like his mobility was kind of hampered in his first game back, but presumably he's going to get back to playing, you know, somewhere close to the level he was playing at before he got hurt, which was sky high. 
And then presumably Nurkic is also going to be back sometime in the not too distant future. So I'll throw it to you, Cash. I mean, how good can these guys be at full strength? Look, I think they can be good. I think they can maybe if everything breaks right, they can get it. like they can win our series, depending on the matchup and stuff and Dame getting hot enough, or Dame and CJ getting hot enough. But I don't really think the ceiling is much higher than that, if that even. And I'd say usually, you know, a team at 23 and 16, the same record as the Nuggets, by the way, um, with a negative point differential, I'd be talking about how overrated they are and why I don't believe in them. And, and you know, they're just getting lucky in these close games. But I almost think like that's completely irrelevant in this case, because the only thing we should be doing is lauding this team and giving them credit for the fact that like, CJ McCollum is 25 games. Nurk has missed most of the season again. It's been Dame and some other dudes. And like, yo, some of those other guys have, you know, had their moments. Terry Stotts had a great year coaching this team. But it's been Dame and some other dudes. And they're out here at 23 and 16 with the same record as the Nuggets. With Dame just being an absolute, like, walking flamethrower in the clutch. You mentioned the 37 to 37 free throws. I think he's up to like 64% or something like that, just in general shooting in clutch minutes. He had 50 and 10 last night. He had 50 and 10. Like, it's just, this guy's automatic when the chips are down. And it's uh, it's awesome to watch. And yes, while I don't believe in the Blazers as an actual contender, I still think they deserve and Dame especially deserves all the credit in the world for even having them in the position they're in. Uh, so that's basically all I want to say about that. Actually, no, one more thing. Dame Lillard's now top seven all time in 50-point games, if you can believe that. That's, I, I guess it's not that shocking, it. but it's kind of nuts. Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to start to see those records really change in the coming years as I mean, maybe there will be some rule changes implemented that will bring the scoring boom back down somewhat. But the way that offenses are just exploding around the league, I feel like, not to take anything away from Dame Lillard, by the way, who is a transcendent scorer, but I just think that the rules have changed a little bit. Go ahead. I was going to say, Helmet, uh, how much were Blazers fans shitting their pants when Dame seemed to hurt his hand? like three minutes into last night's game. I don't know if anyone saw that, but he, I think he was going for a steal maybe, or he got hacked. Mm -hmm. I can't remember. And he, he was like clearly in pain and shaking his hand off for most of the first half. I was just sitting there thinking like, man, how blazers would this be? If like minutes, McCollum comes back minutes into McCollum's return. Dame gets there. Luckily, obviously it didn't end up hampering. I think I had 50 and 10 and the game winning free throws. But uh, yeah, it was definitely a concerning moment. I think what what's kind of amazing about Dame is, look, he has always been good, right? Like as an NBA player. I mean, he came into the league and he was good right away. One rookie of the year. I think he was all NBA in his second season. And his progress has all been pretty incremental. So there's never been this like, holy shit, Dame breakout. And then you turn around, you know, however long it's been, nine years later, and he's this guy who can seemingly do whatever he wants, who is, you know, like I've said in the past, I think the best pick and roll operator in the league and just seemingly getting better all the time. 
where the Blazers can just like, they just spam double drag. And there's so many different things that he can do with it. And, you know, like, I, I feel like the latest wrinkle is when the second screen defender is kind of trying to preempt it by jumping up to meet him there. He's gotten really good at splitting the first and second screen and just like going right down the gut and getting into the middle. Like his playmaking from the middle of the floor has gotten unreal. He's sick at finishing around the basket. And obviously the thing that like doesn't even need to be mentioned is just the fact that he is a ridiculous pull-up three-point shooter with limitless range. So all the respect in the world to him in the season that he's having worthy of being in the MVP discussion. I know that feels sort of like a hollow platitude where it's like, I don't think Dame Lillard is the MVP. I don't think he's going to win the MVP. I don't think he's going to deserve to win MVP, but we still need to mention that he belongs in the conversation. So there's little doubt at this point about what he is capable of, but, and I honestly, I expected this to be like a league average defense. So it kind of caught me by surprise how bad they've been because it's not like they don't have good defenders on the team. Like I think Covington's taken a step back, but he's still a force on the weak side. Like he can create havoc with the way that he's able to rotate how good he is with his hands. And uh, Derek Jones Jr. kind of like the same thing. And and he he's like probably their best on-ball defender, but he is also very solid as a weak side helper. Gary Trent is feisty as hell. Like, they shouldn't be this bad. But I think a lot of the time, they just don't seem to know what they're doing or what they want to be doing. Like, they've changed up their scheme. They're sending two to the ball a lot. And their rotations behind those traps have just been like, they've just gotten picked apart. And I, I don't know what like what the answer is or what the reason is. Like, is it just the fact that like playing Ennis Cantor big minutes is destined to like ruin the integrity of your defense? Um, they're playing mellow big minutes as well. And like they're playing mellow and Cantor at the same time, which is obviously a recipe for disaster. I still don't think that their defense should be as bad as it is, but then I watch them play and it's like, I don't see how they're supposed to get any better. The only hope for them on the defensive end is Nurkic coming back and miraculously being the defensive player he was before that gruesome leg injury. Yeah. If, because... if, if that Nurkic somehow walks through the door, giddy up. Yeah. But barring that miraculous result, it's not happening. I will say, I think... Covington's actually the exact type of secondary or unofficial rim protector we were talking about that I think Denver needs more than anyone. 100%. Yeah. And that's another guy I was thinking, like, I I, I didn't mention him because I don't, right. he's, he's yeah. not going to be traded, happening. but like, he hasn't quite, I don't think had that level of secondary rim protection in Portland. And that's part of the reason he hasn't impacted their defense as much as I expected him to. But the way that he played that role for the Rockets last year, is like, yeah, that's what Denver needs. And he started to play better too, especially at the offensive end. Like he started off the season shooting the ball terribly uh, and also just like being weirdly reluctant to shoot it from three-point range. And I haven't I haven't actually checked, but uh, like when I wrote about him early in the season, he had the lowest three-point attempt rate of his entire career. But I think he's also started to do a little bit more stuff where he's like attacking closeouts, putting the ball on the floor and making productive passes. And defensively, I think he's gotten like just a, a little bit more active 
um, compared to where he was at at the beginning of the season. You mentioned you think that that the Blazers can maybe win a series. Can you think of like what that matchup would be? Who's the team that you'd feel best about them beating in a first round tilt? Uh, yeah, because now here's the thing. <laughs> if you really think about it, like between the two LA teams, Phoenix, Denver, and Utah, four of those five are going to be top four seeds, which means Portland would have to face one of them in the... I'd say if they were going to beat any of those teams, maybe Utah, man. Ah. Yeah, like I, I, just I think, wouldn't pick them. I, I wouldn't you... pick them to beat Utah, but if there's one team I, maybe they have a chance against, I'd yeah. say Utah. Well, that's the team where they like would unquestionably have the best player in the series. Right. And I mean, I guess you could say they would they would against Phoenix as well. But I I just think Utah would pick their defense part yeah for sure like with, with the way that they move the ball and if there's a team against whom you cannot afford to be sloppy rotating on the back end of traps it's against that team um yeah that's fair so yeah maybe it might be denver yeah i mean hell if you like buckets that series would be <laughs> that series could be real good yeah um, no. I agree. Like I wouldn't pick them uh, to yeah. beat any of those teams in a series, but I think if there was a team that maybe they were going to have a chance to beat, I-, I think I think it might be the Nuggets because um, I think maybe their offense could do enough against that Nuggets defense to actually like keep pace and maybe maybe outscore them as opposed to like I don't think their offense would be able to do enough against Utah's defense to make up for what I think Utah's offense could do to them. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, let's do this then before we go. Okay. Rank the teams in the Western Conference based on the probability of them winning the championship, but only include the teams you believe have an actual chance to win the championship. So it could be as as little or as many teams as you want from the West okay. that you think of and rank them by championship probability. Um. Okay, I'm going Lakers number one still. Agreed. Not taking them over the field, as you are, but still putting them number one. Clippers number two. Uh, I still like. I still don't get it. Like, there's something that's just like not quite clicking with that team, and I cannot, for the life of me, figure out what it is. But they're just not as good as they should be, and I don't entirely know why. They're still honestly destroying teams when like their best players are on the floor. So that gives me, I guess, a lot of confidence. And I still think that they are at worst, the second most talented team in the conference. So I have them too. I probably, probably put Denver three, Phoenix four, Utah five. We have the exact same list. And I'm assuming your list also ends there. Like you're not even, right. Yeah. We have, we have the exact same list. Yeah. So, all right. Well, there it is. The five teams that may have a chance of winning the championship in the Western conference, plus Dallas and Portland for good measure. Cash, do you have a fan shout out for us this week? I do. I have a couple backlogged, but uh, you, you want them both. You want one. Let's do one and, and just try and stretch it out. Because uh, I don't want to get to the bottom of the barrel here and then have nothing left for future episodes. 
That's fair. We will save at least one for next week. And I will give the shout out to Ewan Ross, who uh, on Twitter looks like he's from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Ewan Ross in a Twitter conversation he was having with someone about DeAndre Hunter uh, mentioned that the, the reason um, you know he, he was so uh, attuned to what DeAndre Hunter was doing this season was because of Pound the Rock and how he you know heard us talking about DeAndre and the way the Hawks defense is cratered without him. So this week's fan shout out, Ewan Ross, for uh, being a listener, for citing us on Twitter in his basketball debates and conversations. Ewan, thank you for being a loyal listener, for supporting the show. Uh, again, same reminders every week. If you are a supporter of the show, if you're a listener, hit us up on social media or like Ewan did, maybe just CC us in a debate or a conversation you're having uh, and reference the pod and we will try to get you a shout out on a future pod. With that, we'll call it for this week. Next week, we are going to have trade deadline to talk about and who knows, the landscape of the Western Conference could look different by then. I don't know that there's going to be anything earth shattering, but perhaps Aaron Gordon will be a Denver nugget and we'll be talking ourselves into that team emerging from the West. But until then, for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Pound the Rock.